Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, you two, what is new? I'm doing great. First week down in West Palm Beach, which is a lovely place to be. Um, my whole family was with me for the first week, and my older son did not want to go back to Houston, honestly. Ooh, like, I know. That. Well, he's a second semester senior, you know, so he he's kind of he's done with school in general. He's like, Can I just stay here and just take bike rides and go to the beach and just completely yes. forget about the rest of my academic career? And I was like, Yeah, probably, maybe. Hey, let's get through the next <laughs> few weeks and see how it goes. You know. How do you feel about trade school? So, RJ, can we can we now refer to you as Florida man? Yes, you oh can. Oh gosh! And by yes. the way, Florida man, you RJ Heyman. No, everyone needs to Google Florida man and their birthday and see what comes up because it's hilarious. That's awesome. So, Wait, it's it's like the list of what some Florida man, like some idiocy yeah, that they did of on the that year, day. There's some news story. Florida man. You know, does X, uh, and it's pretty. So yeah, just Google your birthday in Florida, man, and and hilarity shall ensue. How are you guys doing? I'm good. You know, we're just doing that thing where you get yourself geared back up in January, and work is going well. I gotta say, uh, you know, when you take a new job, you're kind of terrified that um, you you did the wrong thing, and I'm feeling, you know, like six months into it, like I might actually be called to this work. So, um, yeah, it just took this long. So, yeah. No, if any of my students are listening, you now know. Um, I <laughs> pretended like I felt okay about it, but I actually feel good about it now. So, yeah. yeah. Luckily, Sarah, I, I have no experience with work-related anxiety. So, I'm sorry <laughs> to hear that you do. But um, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Sarah, how did Twin Day come off? Oh, um, oh my god! This is gosh. important. Tw- News you can use. <laughs> Twinsies. <laughs> Twin Day. Twin Day went off well, but I have to say, like the next week. So this the, this past week, she, like our daughter in the morning, was like, "It's free dress day at school." Which for those of you who are of the public school ilk, as I was, it does not mean they give away free dresses. Um, it means you can wear what you want. It's it took me a while. It took me a while. Um, and she was like, "It's free dress day," so she wore her twin outfit thinking everyone else would wear theirs. And we pulled up to the school and no one was in, like everyone was in uniforms. And she immediately started to cry and like wouldn't get out of the car. And the lady had to pull her out of the car. And she's just so lucky her daddy's the priest there because he brought her up a little uniform and changed her in the girls' room. So anyway. Hey, when you have a school with a uniform, isn't everyday twin day? Like, isn't that I the mean, point? I mean, it kind of, yes. Yeah. It's, well, and that was a little bit of my argument against Twin Day, because not only is it Twin Day, but it's, like, expensive <laughs> Twin Day. Like, I have paid for them uniforms. Why is she wearing leggings, you know? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, twin, twin Day. I think it's just been become a, a great emblematic of something. <laughs> I, I keep thinking of what you said when you're like, what? All I want to know is, what were we doing 100 years ago? Because it definitely wasn't it was this. was not this. Um, DZ, well, how are you? How's Charlottesville? 
Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, it's Arctic here. It's really cold. But the students are back in town, which is um, a big deal. And I was just away for a week, and now I'm back. And I just was finished up the materials for the, for the paperback edition of Seculosity. I wrote cool. an extra chapter. So uh, I keep thinking I'm going to be... Uh, Totally sick of talking about it, but then this the world keeps providing such entertaining uh, corroboration and less sort of evidence of a seculosity and the thesis just sort of running wild. Someone sent me this past week, uh, you know, Audible purchased a church and they've made it into the Innovation Cathedral. I don't know if you've seen oh this. Oh my gosh. The Innovation <laughs> Cathedral. And my my friend was like, no one, no one really gets, pe- people used to get mad when you desecrate a sacred yeah. space, but but I guess when Audible does it, it's just kind of cool. And uh, like I kind of prefer a disco. You know what I mean? Like that's less offensive for me. Like at least I'm not trying to accomplish anything. Innovate, innovate. Thou mm. shalt, thou shalt not repeat. Yes. yes. One of our RJ. friends, uh, Robert Perkins. I'll give him a little shout out. Sent me an article this morning uh, entitled "CrossFit's founder has an easy healthcare fix: more CrossFit." <laughs> Which I thought was good. Just do it more. More CrossFit. More F3 well, days all. Thank you. That's the second time we've given F3 in a shout out. I I'm I'm all about it. Uh in fact, let's open up this first. Uh, I just want everyone to know. I don't know worms. what F3 is. It sounds like an airplane. So if you're sitting there, dear listener, like what is F3? Same boat. Okay. So it's my it's my personal preferred form of seculosity. Okay, let's got it. Leave it at okay. that. <laughs> okay, keep going. Who wants to play the status game? Mm. This is by Agnes Collard in The Point. Uh, We talked about something she'd written about parenting and panic a few months ago. But this article blew me away. She talks about, you know, when you meet someone new, uh, the first game you always play is to sort of figure out what points of connection you have and sort of what do you like to do? What do I like to do? Let's, how do we take our conversation further? But she then says there are two advanced games that could be played when you first meet someone. She outlines them. In the importance game, capital I, capital G, participants jockey for position. This usually works by way of casual references to wealth, talent, accomplishment, or connections, but there are many variants. I can, for instance, play this game by pretending to eschew it. Let's get straight down to business. Can telegraph my being much too important to waste time with such games. The other game is the leveling game, capital L, capital G, and it uses empathy to equalize the players. So I might performatively share feelings of stress, inadequacy, or weakness, or home in on a source of communal outrage or frustration or oppression. A player of the importance game tries to ascend high enough to reach for something that will set her above her interlocutor. A player of the leveling game reaches down low enough to hit common ground. The former needs to signal enough power to establish a hierarchy, the latter enough powerlessness to establish equality. And the advanced games really are advanced. This is due to the fact that one must, while playing them, also pretend not to be playing them. It is not okay to approach a new acquaintance with, hey, let us set up a contest to figure out which of the two of us is smarter. Nor would it be that responsible. That is what nine-year-old boys do, just for the record. Yeah. <laughs> Let's, no. race. Let's race right now. <laughs> Nor would it be reasonable for me to say to my colleague, how the administration oppresses us. Let us unite in self-pity. Or to an undergraduate who enters my office, let me tell you how overwhelmed I am. That will put us on equal footing. You know, the stars, they're just like us. Right. 
And then she says, a recent acquaintance told me that the least stressful new interactions in his life were in the army because status relations were immediately evident and common knowledge. You just looked at how many stripes the person had on his shoulder, and that was that. Status negotiations complete. By contrast, in the non-military world, confusion reigns. Billionaires wear hoodies. It is high status to pretend you are low status, and no one sure is, no one is sure who exactly the elite refers to. When status must be renegotiated in every interaction with strangers, people end up spending a lot of time asking and being asked the question, just who do you think you are? The mystery is why we feel required to pretend that this is not what we are doing. The most adroit players are always finding new ways to mix it up, so the successful lighten their self-importance by emphasizing the struggles they face or their humble origins. Likewise, you can add zest to the leveling game by finding ways to turn empathy into a status battleground. This is what the game of competitive wokeness is all about. In an academic contest, I've noticed that complaining about how busy one is Hmm. hits a sweet spot of oppression... I cannot manage my life and importance because I am so in demand. When you're playing with a master, it could be hard to tell which game you're in. I'll stop there for a second. What do you guys uh, make of this so far? This was so painful to read. Was this super painful for you guys to read? Like, I just I mean, I, read it and was like, I could see myself and all the different angles. Like, it's like every time I have a conversation with someone, like, it is crazy how easily I can mention Yale in casual conversation when I first meet someone. <laughs> it's crazy. And here's the thing. I didn't learn much there and didn't enjoy my time. So every time I do it, I'm like, baby, what are you doing, darling? <laughs> like every time it comes out of my mouth, I'm like, you didn't even like it there. And you're like, drop name. And it was the divinity school, sister. You know, everybody gets into the divinity school. You know, it's just like, oh, my word. I, I, I totally totally felt this in a painful way. It also made me think about how like one of the least comfortable things that people can say who are my superior in age or sort of rank or whatever is just call me. Like whenever Mm -hmm. like a professor in college, like I have a professor I'm still close with. I refuse to call him Ted, right? He's Mm -hmm. always Dr. OMB. Like um, or like a bishop in our church hierarchy, like because I read the military thing and thought, oh, I wish that that worked in the church mm. because I think it probably used to. But now it's like you know you'll talk to these people who have enormous power over your life, and they're like, just call me by my first name, and you're like, I mm-hmm. would prefer not to. You know what I mean? Because if I do that, then I might like say, say a four letter word yeah, casually. Right. Yep. <laughs> like, yep. please let's not. You know, um, I don't know. I. I this is really, it was really hard to read. Mm-hmm. RJ? I definitely do a lot of these same things. Play the importance game or the, um, what does he call the other game? The sort of self-deprecating, you know, mm-hmm. what was me. The, the leveling the game. Leveling the leveling game a little bit. I definitely do that. Um, and yet at the same time, I think what my wife and I have noticed is that one of the benefits of being in our profession, quote unquote, pastoral ministry, especially in environments that are very status conscious and competitive, is that once people find out what line of work we're in, it it actually dispels a little bit of that because they know that I'm not going to try to do like a business deal with them or something or or get in good with them to like get into the the club or whatever. You know, it, it removes us a little bit and ha- has allowed us to... Um, 
I don't know, develop maybe more genuine relationships with people than we would have otherwise because it, they because other people have won already. You know, we're, we're never going to have as much money. We're never going to win that status game because I'm a, a, a priest. And, and sometimes it freaks people out and they don't know what to do with it. Um, but then if I'm a little bit of a human being, um, it, it's, it's kind of nice. Um, and yet at the same time, get a bunch of priests together. I was like, girl, exactly. Girl, come and on all now, get do. all the priests in the room yeah. and then see what happens. Exactly. So when you're people with, with people that are like you, then all these same games take over. So I think it, it depends what, what context you're in. Um, I mean, the, the part of the article that, um, I really liked was the sort of last full paragraph, um, or sorry, second to last fuller paragraph, where she writes, mm -hmm. um, and she's a, a philosophy professor at Chicago, I believe, right? I looked her up. Anyway, there's a there is a philosophical conundrum at the root of all this. Morality requires we maintain a safety net at the bottom that catches everyone. Now, first of all, I, I would say, you know, we've talked about this in previous weeks. I would say, Christian morality, Western morality. I, I was a little requires, bit like, is that true? No, yeah. it's not true, but it but I'm it's, with it's, you. it's accepted as true. You know, go read yeah. Tom, Holland, Tom Holland. Tom Holland. Tom Holland. So yeah. so that's not actually true. Because you look at yeah. the world before Jesus, and that was not true. It's like right. you know, leave the baby by the side of the road and let them yeah. die. Yeah. Okay. So she said, morality requires we have the safety net, but we also need an aspirational target at the top so as to inspire us to excellence, creativity, and accomplishment. In other words, we need worth to come for free, and we also need it to be acquirable. And no philosopher, not Kant, not Aristotle, not Nietzsche, not I, has yet figured out how to construct a moral theory that allow us to say both of these things. To which I want to say, have you met Jesus of Nazareth? <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's exactly, because, I mean, RJ... Right? You know, because Yeah, I was I was waiting to read this exact thing and say the exact oh, same thing. Oh, sorry. Well, I'm sorry I jumped the gun. No, well, I'm just like all. you, RJ. I'm I'm right on the same level. I feel like we're oh, just Oh my gosh. Uh, you know, well, feeling, I won. I won me, just so you know. I got there before <laughs> you, you got did there because first. I'm more important and smarter than you are. Um, going to run faster. But, you know, that this is all about First of all, I don't think people need a target to strive for. Right? That's the law. A target to strive for, and, and as much as we may think that looking at pictures of people who are more fit than we are will inspire us to become fit, I, I don't think that's true. I, I think it is much more likely to create um, anxiety, defeatedness, whatever it might be. But Even that, if it makes us more fit, it can it makes it creates exactly those things exactly of it. Yeah, like yeah, we may yeah. look Even better on the works. outside, but we're feeling terrible on the inside. Exactly. Yeah. Even if it seems to quote unquote work, it doesn't actually right. work. What does work? is belovedness, right? Mm. What inspires, and Dave, I thought we were going to talk about cheer. I was all prepared to well, talk about cheer, but but this- RJ, uh, we were getting there. Ugh, Dave. All right, <laughs> anyway. Um, but what motivates people? RJ's taking over as the lead host, folks. I am, That's I what's am. happening. Get ready for it. Hey, West Palm Beach, baby. It's all It's all <laughs> raptor. It's He's all a raptor. It's all, it's all coming it's all, up roses here um, for RJ Heyman. No, but, yeah. the, but the answer- Climbing the hierarchy. The answer is love. The answer is yeah. love, right? That what gives people, first of all, I'm not sure I Hashtag believe the way of cheer. That's a shout yes, out to I'm not sure I believe yes. in intrinsic <laughs> worth to human beings. What I believe is that we are loved by God and that gives us mm. worth. And then as we come to terms with the fact that we are loved by God and nothing can change that, that is what inspires us. You know, not shooting for some goal, not ideals, but 
belovedness and love. I think that's where these two things come together. So I, I love the diagnosis of this article. I think she's exactly right. Um, I think people are scared to death of humiliation and worthlessness, but the um, I think there might actually be an answer that Kant and Aristotle and Nietzsche have not have not fixed upon, but someone else might have. I know every um, time she listed a name off, I was like, "Is this gonna? Nope, nope, nope." Like none of these are gonna help us. Get to I, Jesus, lady. I I do. Well, I think we should talk about Cheer for a minute um, because we're all watching it. We're all texting about it. About it. What uh, What is it for those who haven't so heard, haven't Cheer seen? Cheer is a documentary that Kate Zoll was the first person on the planet who knew about. That is true. Life. And it's a documentary on Netflix about a cheer squad in Navarro, Texas. Well, Navarro Community Nazareth, College Texas. in Corsicana, <laughs> Texas. Um, Nazareth, yes. Nazareth, <laughs> Texas. And they have this amazing coach. They're, uh, they've won like years and years in a row national championships. There's an amazing coach, Coach Monica, who um, – I don't know. I was thinking about sort of that documentary in light of this article and how the beautiful thing and the reason we love documentaries is because we actually get to know people in a real way without having to tell them where we went to seminary. Do you know what I mean? Like we get to know people without having to put up this our own front. And this documentary is so compelling because these students are the least, the last, the lost, and the lonely. I mean, and it is incredible because it's like, I keep like thinking about that. I keep thinking about that show because yes, they are the greatest, right? They're like literally have the trophies to prove they're the greatest cheer competitors in the country. But also, these kids are like train wrecks, a they're lot a of mess. them. They're a mess. Such a right? mess. They're a total mess. And their and families like, are a mess. Yeah. <laughs> some of them aren't even like super physically fit, you know? And like somehow this woman has taken them and shaped them into um, something incredible. And she does it, actually, she does it to, to what RJ's saying because she gives them a place where they belong. I mean, that's what they all mm. talk about. They all, I mean, I feel like almost every character refers to her as a mother figure, right? Like it's this place where they belong, where they're known and where they don't, and it's a super competitive environment, right? But they 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 all know each other's stories in a way and they don't seem to have this need, I don't know, to, to, to disconnect through superiority or something. Like, yeah. It's really remarkable, her instinct. Monica Aldana is her name. And she's, when you first meet her, she seems very buttoned up and mm -hmm. like a hard ass. Mm -hmm. You know, you're like a little scared of her. But then you keep hearing the kids say, uh, you know, uh, I would take a bullet for her, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. even after she's really disciplined them. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of the kids, they've never had any kind of structure or rules and they love that and they never want to leave. Consistency. Yeah, but you see what it is. It's it, although she is giving them this goal to point towards and this sort of beauty and excellence. It's also this sort of safety net that has caught them, and she knows exactly when to relent on the the law and come in with 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 pure protectiveness, grace, uh, intervening love that is kind of reliable. In, and and. It almost feels like spirit driven in a way. I, it, the, the church. It's. I mean, the the team itself functions like a a church. And again, it's all happening under its opposite because for most people, and Sarah, you you talked telling me about this before. Like cheerleading represents like the height of 
I don't know, a, a certain sense of like American super, superficiality yeah. or yeah. beauty. It's like a, a, is one step away from perfection uh, or perfect superficiality yes. or something. Yeah, it's like, yeah, who yeah, cares? Yeah. Like who, you yeah. know, like yeah. be- beauty queen stuff yes. Yeah. Yes. and like yeah, yeah, child yeah. stars. Yeah. And you realize there's this athleticism and the guy says, I've never seen such athleticism. Um, and it really is this fellowship and uh, and and yes, a surrogate family for all these people whose parents have died, who's abandoned them, or uh, you know have have been disowned, abused, um, or yeah. in the case of Gabby, are completely bananas. I mean, right? Like even oh, the parents that crazy. are around are yeah. nuts. Yeah. Oh my god. Just eat jackfruit; yeah. it'll keep your tummy full for fifteen hours. I was like, who is this man? <laughs> well, anyway. but also so, but they they. they What's also important, though, is that they do love cheerleading. They love they love Monica, mm-hmm. and they love each other, but they also love what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And there's the, there's a motivation that comes from that, just because they're they're so invested in what they're doing. You know, and and, and Todd Brewer wrote a great piece about this for the the blog for um, Ember.com. but he talks about the, about Luther's theology of kind of work that there's no there's no work that's intrinsically better than anything else. It's what you are called to do. And she is called to be a coach. And these kids for this moment in their life are called to be cheerleaders. And they do it with, um, they put everything they have into it because of belovedness and because of love. Like Mm -hmm. that's what grounds them. That's what motivates them. That's what inspires them. Um, And it's also not like a happily, happy ever after story. You know, they continue to be human beings. They continue Mm -hmm. to struggle. Um, so it's yeah, just super compelling. And Daytona Beach is only two hours north of West Palm. So we may be making a pilgrimage what? for the national, you know, to come on down, Sarah. What? You know, so. Mockingbird, Florida. <laughs> it's it's actually it just the like cheerleading a, championships. That's all. Pretty no much. One's speaking. That's We're all just going is. to see if we can That's see exactly. Coach Monica. It's a Mockingbird field trip. <laughs> I was talking to someone who felt it was like the perfect combination of what's great about red states and what's great about blue states all wrapped in one. Oh, I love that. And yeah. in, in a moment of hopeful that these things can be integrated because it's Texas and yet it's total, uh, you know, and it's kind of, you know, working hard rules, but then it's also love and tolerance and pure, uh, you know, compassion. Embrace. I mean, it's really embrace. embraced in this beautiful way that like but is the two so unexpected. Kinda, and didn't you feel they can kind of coexist? It gave me hope yeah. watching it. Yeah. And there's safety too they're safe but um guys i I do want to say that the importance game and the leveling game again though where it cut me sarah Uh is not is the importance game because i feel like that is endemic and i i do that and i've just kind of written a book about how everything becomes an importance game it's the what cut me was the leveling game because that's my instinct and i think it's always the gracious instinct and i'm trying to say you know downplay these things and and to the this note that it it's actually another, it all gets wrapped up into this proving the status thing mm-hmm. and in which I'm trying to either disarm you or uh, sort of, um, uh, you know, pacify you. Mm-hmm. And the way that it it works out in, in the sort of the law that exists dynamically between people is one of the reasons, again, that the, that the, that cheer struck me so much is that when we're talking about law and grace, we're not talking about a formula. We're talking about something that it, it has a dynamic living power. It's real. And what these, some of these kids in cheer, they can experience this ruleness, this like 
extreme, uh, you know, strictness as total love mm. and vice versa. You know, they've experienced complete, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, licentiousness or something. I don't even know what, what the opposite would be, but the, the, the permission to do anything they've yeah. experienced is the lack of love. Yeah. And so for me, in my experience with other people, I realized I realized that I'm uh, playing that game, uh, even when I say I'm not playing the game. When I'm mm-hmm. trying opposite to play the game, and it does. RJ, I had honestly, I'm, I'm I'm not really trying to bond with you. And that I thought, don't try to there bond. There is with me, Dave. something. There is something, and that Christianity, we we don't eschew uh, that there's goodness and excellence and beauty in the world, no. but we also say that uh, we are all far gone from original righteousness, and that Jesus is somehow the the um, you know the space that uh, the the person the the uh, God's uh, you know net that comes in and somehow redeems all of it in a way that is uh, active and defies our ability to predict it, which is what uh, made me so excited for all these things to work together. And another way we've seen that this week, guys, is this movie, Just Mercy. Mm. Have, you, have you read the book, Just Mercy mm-hmm. by Brian Stevenson? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, RJ, I know we talked about his New York Times article a long time ago. I think you sent it to me about, um, he first came to at least my attention. He wrote some piece in the New York Times magazine about going to death row mm. and meeting a man who was guilty and he was a young lawyer and he started singing a hymn and uh, he had the more hope and more joy than any, it, it completely challenged his notions of redemption redemptiveness. Uh, anyway, there's been a movie of this incredible book that Brian Stevenson, the, uh, he's, a, he's a black lawyer and a strong Christian, and uh, Dominique Dubois-Gilliard interviewed him for Christianity Today. I just wanted to throw this out there as we continue our discussion. He's, she said, part of what I saw manifested in the movie is you, Stevenson, seeing value in people who sometimes don't see it in themselves, and having the conviction to fight for them, even when they seem to not have that same conviction. Uh, And he said, what has defined my work over the last 35 years is this belief that each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. I genuinely believe that no one is just their worst act. If you tell a lie, you're not just a liar. Or if you take something, you're not just a thief. Even if you've killed someone, you're not just a killer. And justice requires that we know the other things that you are. Here's where it gets incredible. He says, it's easy to expect the worst part of you and just stay in that place because it takes work and faith and hope and belief and love to transcend some of the difficult and painful things we do to one another. I think that's what we're called to do. And in that respect, the work can be both ministry and advocacy at the same time. I want, this is why, this is where it, to me goes into the stratosphere. He says, I want the same things for me that I want for my client. I want the opportunity to be forgiven if I say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. I can't expect that for myself if I'm not going to give it to other people. That has shaped my work. I don't want to see anybody burdened with the lie that their life doesn't matter, that they're beyond hope and beyond redemption or beyond any purpose. I don't believe that for anyone. And part of what my work is about is trying to illuminate that path so that we both can see it. Mm. Grace, grace in practice of sort of the highest order that, again, doesn't eschew the law. Uh, he's not trying to erase the wrong things they've done, but he is trying to believe in someone when they don't believe in themselves, to advocate for someone who stopped advocating for themselves, for, to basically plead for mercy for those who don't, quote-unquote, deserve it, because that's what mercy is. 
how did this strike you? Or sometimes when we talk about death row, it's such an extreme case that it's easy to to abstract it and oh, to not I, identify. It's, it's but, not for me at all because anytime I, I hear this stuff, um, I always think about raising children, and I always hmm. think about like what we impart to them about who they are and about how we handle their sin, how we handle their tantrums, how we handle their screw-ups is so incredibly important. And I and I say that knowing that like parents hear that and they're like, oh my God, like I don't get this right most of the time. But you know, those are those are the first stories I remember reading on Mockingbird were the stories of um kids who'd really screwed up and who had been forgiven. Like that was like the first because there's something about when I think about, it's mostly men who are on death row, and I think, like, they were all, I mean, unless there's some, I know somebody's thinking, well, what if they're, you know, they've got a big mental illness. I get that. But, like, they were all once four-year-olds, right, who mm. just wanted to be good. That's all they wanted. You know what I mean? They were all four-year-olds who just wanted to be good. And, like, circumstance and their family situation and their the world and society whatever took that away from them um really early generally and mm. so i i don't know like i i find this work so powerful because i think it it speaks to the fact that like I don't know that that redemption. Like we're we're so willing to give four year olds redemption, right? We're so willing to believe that like they can um they can be forgiven. I hope we are. I hope we are. Um, that sometimes for me, when I hear about these guys on death row, like I just remember like they're, you know, they were four-year-olds once. I don't know. They got mamas and daddies, you know? Hmm. I know what he means when he's talking about worth and dignity and how everyone is worth more than the worst thing they've ever done. And yet there's something about that language that seems um, more 20th or 21st century to me than it seems Christian. And there's something about it that doesn't sit quite right. And I was thinking about, you know, this Saturday is the the day in the Episcopal Church and probably Catholic and Orthodox too, when we remember the conversion of St. Paul. And I'm going to talk about that on Sunday. Um, and what's miraculous to me about that is here you have a guy who, you know, Saul of Tarsus, who's just who who hates Christians and hates Jesus and has made it his life's work to stamp out Christianity. And he's just come from, you know, witnessing the killing of some Christians and he's on his way to kill some more. <laughs> and and Jesus knocks him from his horse and says, You're my guy. Like you're my guy. And the miracle of Christianity to me is not that we're more than the worst thing we've ever done. It's that God loves us at and accepts us at the moment at which we have done the worst thing we've ever done. Mm -hmm. um, and there's something different to me about that, that it's not, that that these questions of worth and dignity and self-esteem and all this, which flow out of Christian theology, still to me, it's not enough because it, it's, it's, it is about love. Like this man goes into these places on death row out of love, right? Because he is loved by God and he wants, and he feels compelled um, to love other people because of that belovedness. And that the way it bears itself out is, is in treating people as if they're worth something. Um, 
and giving them, you know, giving them back their story, giving them back their their dignity, but really showing that they are, I don't even want to say worthy of love, but that they are loved and there's nothing they yeah. can do about it. Worth isn't the issue. Yeah. Worth isn't the issue, you know. Um, it's not the issue, dude. Um, I I so, hear, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, and I struggle with this all the time, right? Like I, I had another friend who passed away who was a, a therapist and he would talk about the difference between kind of self-worth and self-esteem. Mm-hmm. You know, thinking that you were worth something even if you weren't very happy with what you'd accomplished. And mm-hmm. it was, she was trying to parse the same difference that the the philosophical article we just were talking about was trying to parse. Like how do you have a sense of self um, but then also be motivated to do something? Um, but all this therapeutic language around worth and esteem and um, it just, it, it falls flat. It falls flat to me that I, what I need to know at the end of the day is that, um, I'm loved not because of anything I bring to the table, because that could all go away at any moment. I'm only loved because someone, because God has chosen to love me and to say, I love you. And it's something outside of myself that I have no control over. It doesn't depend on me. Like that's where my hope lies. Um, because if it's anything to do with anything intrinsic to me, it's it's fleeting. Mm. So I think that that's where it. Um, those are my thoughts, and I'm, I don't. I don't. I hope I'm not sounding un, unnecessarily critical of what he's saying because he is doing amazing things. Um, but Sarah, what do you think? I mean, I totally agree. I think the I, I think the way that we feel about ourselves is very unreliable. Yes. Um, and I think the way that we feel about ourselves pales in comparison to the way that God feels about us. Yes. Um, so, I mean, I, 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 I get what he's saying. And I think particularly for the communities that he serves, which are mostly poor black Southern communities, the idea of dignity and self-worth are things that those communities have had stripped from them and they are absolutely important. Um, but I think when I think about when I think about those things, when I reflect from for myself, I, I it's like I can only kind of rely on what how God feels about me, right? Yes, yes, yeah. But that's that's why I thought it was so powerful what he said is because I I, I I believe this for these other people because I'm dying to believe it for myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He actually identifies with them not in their worthiness. He identifies with them as he as as at least what I hear is the fact that he could also say and do the wrong thing that right. there, but for the grace of God, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And we don't want to think that. We want to parse people into victims and victimizers. And you know, a modern if I mean, it, it, to some extent. Stevenson gets can get away with it because he's working exclusively in those communities. Absolutely. But a lot of in, in in a if it were if it were more rarefied or more affluent communities, you'd say, well, what about the victims of these men on death row? And that's what people would say. They would they would immediately go to there because you cannot offer mercy to these people because what about the victims? And you know, it was none other than Martin Luther King Jr. This week we quote put it on the website where he says, "Through violence you may murder a hater, but you cannot murder hate through violence." Darkness cannot put out darkness. Only light can do that. Yes. And what he's advocating for is a break in the endless circle of retribution and uh, condemnation, which may have its roots in what's deserved, but he's arguing for something sort of beyond that. At least that's how I experience it. And that's why um, it's it speaks so powerfully to me because I also 
want to want that. Uh, you know, w- the other passage that we're this I'm not supposed to preach on this past weekend is uh, the stuff about the cross being foolishness, mm. and the world says um, the way to deal with wrongdoing is to punish it, yes, and to exon make sure that the victims are taken care of, incarcerated. <laughs> that's beautiful. I mean, or it, it, it it's it's not that b- victims shouldn't be overlooked in any way. But here you have uh, the gospel. It says that actually you cannot dispel evil or sin by changing the language people use, by putting it, by incarcerating it. That in fact the only thing that has the power to deliver people uh, from certain death and what they basically deserve is grace, mercy, absolution, and ultimately the blood of uh, of. of you know, a blood sacrifice. Isn't that what, uh, what, uh, um, Brian Cox says in, in Logan Roy in secession? It's, hmm. uh, it's ugly, but it feels like there's something to it. And, um, I've been told that the, the film itself, I haven't gotten to see it yet, uh, cause of, you know, hashtag little kids. I was like, but, the kids, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, I've been told that the film does not downplay either the grisliness of the people he's dealing with or, the, the faith component and his the deep Christian faith, because marked up in all this is the existence of evil and uh, the devil by which people are overcome. And um, how do those how are those things bound in life? How are they? How has anything good ever happened? And it's usually some echo of God, the Spirit working through grace and mercy. I, th- I I'm, maybe that's naive or Pollyanna, but that's that's what Brian Stevenson's how it speaks to me. Um. And that's not the final word, but so, but because we, but I do want to move on to this incredible uh, essay about uh, by Philip Jenkins about the decline of usness, bowling alone and dying alone. Because we're talking another another sense here about this sort of despair, and the um, that re- that we're, we're sort of dealing with all around us. In two thousand, maybe uh, listeners are familiar with Robert Putnam's book Bowling Alone which suggested that the U.S. was suffering a long-term decline in social capital, which had previously been reflected in the great vigor of civic and community associations, everything from the Masonic and fraternal societies to bowling leagues. Lacking those connections, networks, and support systems, Americans slide more to anomi and alienation. He sort of breaks this down and says, we just don't join clubs anymore, (laughs) and society as a whole suffers. Putnam sees this as a major source of the mortality epidemic or the the deaths of despair. Now, here's Jenkins, who is a a church historian. He says, before the 1960s, say, it was easy and natural to join a church or synagogue just as you signed up for any kind of social organization. It was what we in this community did as part of what makes us a collective us. We were clubbable and churchable. (laughs) He says, a word I've just invented. More recently, that is simply not the case. When churches decline, it's not so much a matter of theology or morality debates or anger at the misbehavior or attitudes of a particular churches or their hierarchies. Rather, we have become non-joiners, non-participators. Successful institutions adapt to that as best they can. Megachurches offer a great example in the very varying degree of commitment they offer and demand. Highly relevant to this story is the growth of the much-publicized nuns, the religious nuns, not necessarily people who reject belief, Uh, And they might actually be quite religious in their attitudes, but people who refuse any kind of affiliation with a religion or religious denomination. We can tell this story as one of secularization, 
secularization, but it is rather one of isolation, of non-joining, of a rejection of usness. Large sections of the population have given up being churchable. The other part of the larger story is that people do indeed seek community ties and usness, but now they mainly find those things on the internet. At its worst, this quest manifests through the shrieking of Twitter mobs, which coalesce almost randomly, express deep and passionate solidarity on particular causes, and then dissipate. We still become us, however temporarily, but with a total lack of physical presence. Collective institutions and sentiments are still there, but in a radically different form. Um, did this resonate with you guys as we talk about the alienation uh, that we see around us? I feel like I've told the story before, but I was thinking about how there's this priest wife who I know on the internet uh, who, like, we comment on the same things and like each other's pictures and blah, 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 blah. And, like, I once saw her at a party and gave her a hug, and she was like, why are you hugging me? We don't know each other. <laughs> and I was like, whoa. Um, and she wasn't joking. Yeah, no, not at all. Ooh, and I wow. was like, okay, got it. Uh, so, like, I don't even know that that actually counts as community, that people sort of coalesce under, like, a banner of a Twitter cause and then just, you know, like, I don't I don't know if that's even the same thing at all. Like, it's, mm -hmm. I've learned so much about the importance of community in ministry with college students. I mean, that has been, I don't think I realized how much, like they needed it. I don't, I, I think I just like completely didn't realize how crucial that was going to be um, to, to it being successful, that this would be a place where community could grow, that this would be a place that um, people would feel welcomed into. Um, and I know that, that like, there's a whole thing in the church that's like, you know, like we just need to be more welcoming and community, community. But I actually think you have to be rooted in, the sense that this is the only place where you get this kind of community. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that that I always think about what Jacob Smith says about like anybody can build a well in Africa. You know what I mean? But what happens at church is like unique to church because it is. I mean, it's a, it's a place of not just acceptance because like, you know, the Rotary Club is a place of acceptance, um, but a, a place where you know, I mean, I think at its best, hopefully I just have a, like, a college ministry that looks like cheer, you know? I mean, hopefully it's just a place where people can show up and, like, be themselves. And there's some structure, but there's a tremendous amount of, like, love. And, like, I don't know. I, I just I – th I haven't thought about community as much as I've thought about community in the past few months. Mm. Not necessarily community for community's sake. I mean, it's got to be, there's got to be something larger uh, at work yeah. around which the communities form. Yeah. Um, and I just want to say, like, in terms of creating a cheer community, I'm very much a Jerry. You know what I mean? I'm not a Monica. Like, I just want to, I just want to cheer you on like a crazy not person. Not a Lexi or a he gets, I love it when he gets possessed and starts oh yelling. Oh my God, it's so good. You know, the New York Times this very week also wrote another article about how did Americans lose faith in everything? Yuval Levin. Because everything this, betrayed them. <laughs> well, that's, he says a little bit about that, but he says, what stands out about our era in particular is a distinct kind of institutional dereliction, a failure even to attempt to form trustworthy people and a tendency to think of institutions not as molds of character and behavior, but as platforms for performance and prominence rather than work through the institution Ooh. 
people I see use you it. Suburbia. <laughs> and rather than work through the institution, we use it as a stage to elevate ourselves, to raise our profiles and perform for the cameras in the reality show of our unceasing culture war. Uh, I thought that was very perceptive because what it's saying is that to the extent that institutions are um, being, and this is the media is, I think, one institution where I see this, where you're you're rather you're not striving with the rest of your journalists to you know uh, follow the truth wherever it may lead. I think increasingly you're trying to build your brand as a journalist and using that platform to um, to continue to perform that uh, you know to be that righteousness or or that prominence and i i see that it almost inherent or intrinsic to the technology that supports it and i don't really know what it means except for um it's it's definitely something i think unconsciously uh when people have asked about why mockingbird you know we were wondering if we should have contributor pages in our new website that we're working on and i, th- I thought to myself well there's already enough of that where everyone's building their personal brand. One of the things that is refreshing to me about this work is where we can all kind of be together and not, um, while going about the you know necessary so evil of self-promotion, still to say that we're not going to consciously foster that here. Um, I don't know. And cheer, you remember, it's a team. Uh, it's a little unlike, and the... <laughs> <laughs> the Gabby, who's like the great star, is kind of the the one who you feel the worst for. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I always did individual sports growing up, and I think it really had a, an adverse effect on my psychology. Anyway, Thanks, that's, mom and dad. But, so let me say something, Sarah. You were you were asking, um, what is that makes church unique? Yeah. Um, and I don't, you know. As I think it was Martin Luther King said, you know, there's no hour in America that's more segregated um, than Sunday mornings, you know, Mm -hmm. that churches tend to be somewhat segregated. And yet, and yet, I still think it's true that churches may be some of the more um, diverse spaces in our culture where people of different ages, um, backgrounds, races actually do kind of interface with one another and and put aside some of the things about which they might fight in other contexts aside for the sake of worshiping Jesus. And um, there might be other spaces like that in our culture. But, you know, getting back to Tom Holland, you know, the church, uh, Christianity may actually be the, the original place where that was where that was true. You know, that, that um, as Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, but all are one in Christ Jesus. And commentators of the day noted that, that rich people and poor people were hanging out together. And that just wasn't necessarily the case for religions which came before, you know, that had um, caste systems or, or, or social hierarchies, things like that. So there is something about, you know, as we talk about the, the, the leveling thing, there yeah. is something about Jesus that actually does level in a good way, like not yeah. in a, I'm so important, I'm a victim, love me, you know, I will gain power over you through my being more leveled than you. Jesus does actually put everyone on the same footing. Um, and I remember thinking that in college, I think I've said this before, that when I would go to church, you know, First Pres Berkeley and uh, during college, I was like, oh my gosh, look, there's little kids here and older people here and a whole bunch of people that don't look like me and how nice it was to be part of a more uh, uh, realistic community than just constantly hanging out with 18 to 22 year olds all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So there is something about Jesus that seems to actually seems to actually break down boundaries, you know, and Paul talks about that quite a bit in the New Testament, although, you know, not as much as we hope they might be broken down. I actually, you were like, that church, you know, there may be other spaces. There are not other spaces. The only pl- space that happens sports. in this church. Sports, maybe. No, no. Mm-mm. Except for it luxury doesn't. suites. <laughs> you don't see, you don't know, because I'm not bringing like a three-month-old to a football, professional football thing where there's like an 85-year-old. Like, that happens at church. You know what I mean? And where the 85-year-old has to put up with a three-month-old, you know? And, like, where I'm nursing the three-month-old and the 85-year-old, well-meaning, because he's an usher, comes over and asks me if the baby's cold because there's something over her. That only happens at church. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, and it's beautiful. It's like we're, like, uh, very much ourselves on some level in that space. And, um, I mean, the number of times I think about, like, we have, like, all, we have all these interesting kind of family situations at church that either lead to, we've got some single dads, um, one of, one of family I love, the, the mom's a, I think she's a neonatologist. So she like, you know, works so many days on so many days off. So her husband will bring the kids to church on his own. And like, I can't tell you how many times, like we'll be walking towards the altar together. Cause there's like this herd of us in the back. And his name is Will, and Will's daughter will just shoot off in one direction because she's like four, and he'll just look at me and go, I give up. (laughs) (laughs) It's like so beautiful in that moment, you know. I don't know. I just I don't I don't think it happens anyplace else. Like huh. Yeah, and and let's face it, it doesn't happen at that what we describe as a pretty, you know, it's not always the case that that's not always people's experience of church. Um where they do feel like they're only they're only welcome if it's a certain you know if if they're they're well behaved or something, but um, but part of I, what can freak you out about church is that you're so used to only hanging out with people who agree with you and look like you and act like you and think like you that when you're actually in a space where that's not the case it's like ah you know it's a little like oh yeah the world is a crazy place um, but there's something beautiful about that. About I'm going to play do an RJ here and, and punt to scripture because the uh, uh, the there's the, in the same passage from First Corinthians where Paul is like kind of castigating the church there and saying you know everyone was dividing up based on who had baptized them you know yes. did, yeah, yeah, yeah. did did Apollo baptize Apollos baptize you did Peter you know, yeah. Peter all, all these things and they they basically are trying to make the church into different clubs. Yes. And here you have, he's like kind of coming against that in the way that like, this is actually a club for those, uh, um, uh, for 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 people that God has joined, not people who join God. You know, it's not, mm. it's not a new pedigree hierarchy thing. It's the, the community that results. It's the, what is it? The League of the Guilty. It's the, the Hypocrites Anonymous. It's the, um, it's, it's the it's the leveling game that happens when the games end. You know, for those who lose the game, uh, or I don't know, it 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 has this. Um, there's like a paradoxical uh, beauty to what is actually going on. It's the club of the unclubable. Um, I don't know. These are these. Maybe we're getting. I love too- that though. No, it's so good, Dave. Because it, it. I mean, one of my favorite awkward conversations to have, and I. My bread and butter is awkward conversations. Is when people will 
go after other denominations or other churches and be like, well, we're not like them. You know what I mean? Mm. I'm like, one of those unfortunately, Christians. they are us. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's not up to you. Worse, like we're all, like we're we're brothers and we're literally siblings with them. So like, you know, it's um God actually feels very good about them, even if you don't, you know, and he feels good about you too. So like here we are. Like well, I, I like, just what? What did someone say? Any you know, with with God or with Jesus, anytime you draw a line, uh, you ensure that you're on the outside, right? You know, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That Jesus is standing on the other side of well, it. Let's yeah. I, I, let's end though with not talking about these in global terms. Let's talk about specific terms yes, by perfect. reading this incredible obituary, let's which we talk we've, about Ken, like Ken Fusen, Ken, Ken, or Ken. I hope I'm saying <laughs> that correctly. Ken, who uh, who's sort of chubby, kindly, writerly face. I just uh, makes oh, me so happy to my see. My dad is a chubby writer, so I was here for this. Sorry, this is, dad. <laughs> this is Aaron Zimmerman's put this, I guess, out there on on Facebook, and, and it just made the rounds, and we've put it up. And Sarah, you put up something today on Mockingbird that it in, includes it. And I just found it, to, I think it might be the best obituary I've ever read. I'm, I'm one of the encouraging things, uh, you know, about the last couple of years, I think, is is this trend of humorous um, or honest obituaries. Mm-hmm. And here's one that is honest, but also hopeful in precisely the most, uh, I don't know, inspiring, exciting, and um, not sad way. So, this, is, this appeared in the Des Moines Register, and it's clearly a self-penned obituary. I'm going to read the sort of second half of it. There are those who would suggest that becoming a freelance writer in the midst of the worst recession since the Great Depression was not a wise choice. But Ken was never one to be guided by wisdom. He wrote the book Heading for Home with Kent Stock about the 1991 Norway baseball team that won the state championship in its final season. Good copies still available. (laughs) In 2011, Ken accepted a job in the marketing department at Simpson College, where he remained until 2018. He enjoyed it very much, but once again forgot an important lesson. Always have a plan B. He was diagnosed with liver disease at the beginning of 2019, which is pretty ironic given how little he drank. Eat your fruits and vegetables, kids. He is survived by his sons, Jesse and Max, and his stepson, Jared Reese, who all brought Ken unsurpassed joy. He hopes they will forgive him for not making the point more often. He loved his boys and was and is extraordinarily proud to be their father. For most of his life, Ken suffered from a compulsive gambling addiction that nearly destroyed him. But his church friends and the loving people at Gamblers Anonymous never gave up on him. Ken last placed a bet on September 5th, 2009. He died clean. He hopes that anyone who needs help will seek it, which is hard, and accept it, which is even harder. Miracles abound. Ken's pastor says God can work miracles for you and through you. Skepticism may be cool, and for too many years, Ken embraced it, but it was faith in Jesus Christ that transformed his life. That was the one thing he never regretted. It changed everything. For many years, Ken was a member of the First United Methodist Church in Indianola and sang in the choir, which was a neat trick considering he couldn't read a note of music. The choir members will never know how much they helped him. He then joined Lutheran Church of Hope. If you want to know what God's love feels like, just walk in those doors. Seriously, right now, we'll wait. Ken's not going anywhere. Ken had many character flaws. If he still owes you money, he's sorry, sincerely. But he liked to think that he had a good sense of humor and a deep compassion for others. He prided himself on letting other drivers cut in line. 
He would give you the shirt off his back, even with the ever-present food stain. Thank goodness nobody asked. It wouldn't have been pretty. He was also a master jumbles solver. In lieu of flowers, Ken asked that everyone wear black armbands and wail in public during a one-year grieving period. (laughs) If that doesn't work, how about donating a book to the public libraries in Granger or Indianola? Yes, this obituary is probably too long. Ken always wrote too long. God is good. Embrace every moment, even the bad ones. See you in heaven. Ken promises to let you cut in line. Just kills me. Like I started crying halfway through. I want to use this so bad in a sermon, but it's going to be so awkward for my college students if I start to weep in the middle of like preaching. It's just so beautiful and so um, kind of exactly like I think we all hope and pray that we'll live and leave. and church is different. The community is different because it's a community in which we're constantly reminded that this isn't the final word mm. and that there's great relief in there. That like no matter how you and RJ and myself, no matter how much therapy we go to, and I go to a lot, um, we're still going to have people that we interact with where we say hi uh I went to Yale Divinity School. You know what I mean? Like, that's not going to get better. Like, it'll get better a little bit, then it'll get worse again. Hmm. And that's not actually the final word for um, for us, and that there's great relief there. And we have somebody like Ken who comes through the church and talks about it in this way. I mean, gosh, you know, people always talk about it, and, and I talk about it because I, I have, I come from one of those women. My grandmother was one of those women that had like that, that, we talk about the church ladies and the faith that they have for all those years. And God bless it. Those are incredible stories. But you know what else is incredible? People like Ken, who like find the church later and like are in the Methodist church choir and like talk about redemption in that way. Um I think we love the stories of old ladies and we love the stories of guys with tattoos, right? But like when you hear a story about a guy that had like the same kind of quiet addiction we all have, right? Mm. In our own way, um, the same sort of unassuming look about him. It's like, oh my God, like that's me. Mm. Yeah, and as we talk about being leveled and and humiliated and just sinning like that's that's something that no one escapes right, right. That, that's just part of life and it's not a power play <laughs> it's not like i guess you can try to turn it into a power play but there are going to be certain things that happen to in to you in your life that there's no way to turn around into a into something that's that's a strength or good or something a weapon you can use against someone else but but that we um you know through all these articles i was and and sorry to pull at rj again i guess but i just thought i think about this all the time about what Paul says about Jesus in Philippians 2. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit of it. Uh, who, Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That we have a, That we worship a God who was willing to be humiliated um, and it was, it was out of love, right? It wasn't, it wasn't a power player to get one over on someone. Um, mm. and I find that tremendously hopeful. Um, like, like Sarah was saying, cause everyone has their own story of, of powerlessness and pain, um, and, and suffering. 
Um, but to walk into a place where like, that's be like, and have, have people say, or hear from the public, like, Hey, that's our story. <laughs> Us too. Welcome. <laughs> Guess mm-hmm. what? You're loved. You're forgiven. You're accepted and nothing can change that. Um, that's powerful. Mm. God has joined the non joiners, which includes you. Uh, the people yeah. who, 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 who stiff arm that, I. And yet, you know, I I love the fact that he, when he says I died clean, Mm. there's hope. He's, whatever victory he experienced or healing, it's, he was still a member of that community. I don't think, it didn't sound at all like he would, he would um, describe himself as victorious. It sounds like he gives credit to that community and above all to God. Um, And that, whatever the, the deep suffering that that, must have um, produced in his life it the 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 flip side of it or the um, the healing from it produced uh, enormous humor and mm. the gift of hope that is now transferred to to me you know mm. it's it's the Brian Stevenson thing mm. like uh, I, I get to believe this because Ken believed it or I, I have find a little easier time um, the 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 actual sort of there's like a mundane redemption to it that I think um, that doesn't connote like a lack of insight or uh, sophistication or I, I don't there's there's something about his tone which is deeply human and all the good things that we love about uh, our species without almost any of the bad which kind of I, I think is produced in the face of death but also um, love and um, I'm, I don't, I'm, I'm struggling to put this into words. I wish I had Ken here with me. Well, uh, and to yeah. go back to the first article, um, he's not trying to win any game. Yeah, this is not a, you know, this is not a game for him. He's not trying to win. He has found a place of peace with who he is. Um, and, That's and, it, RJ. And only, love, and only love can do that. What has he got um, to lose? I mean, he keeps saying, like, there's, it's, it's over for him. <laughs> yeah, and, well, and he wrote this beautiful piece, uh, not because he was shooting for some ideal, but because he was loved. He wasn't you know? even here to see the response. Exactly. It. He just right? did it out of love for his, for, his, for his Lord, his church, Crazy. his family. Um, yeah. Well, let's. I think Ken should. We should allow him to have that final word. He'll 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 see us in heaven, and he'll even let us cut the line. Um, I I feel that way about you too. So, um, parting shots. I'm not letting you guys cut. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.